Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, hello and good evening at the beginning of a new week. Thank you for joining me on ADH TV, your news streaming service for nighttime opinion and news analysis. There you can watch it at any hour of the day, whenever it suits you. A big show for you tonight. And then Fred Paul will take you into the hour after mine. The slide continues for the Liberal Party, especially in New South Wales. And I'll be looking at that issue also in relation to Victoria later in the week. But here in New South Wales, they've lost the plot. State Council was held at the weekend. It was held at the weekend at the Rose Hill Racecourse, where the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet addressed party members. How he got to Rose Hill, I have no idea, because he is so disorganised and has a completely dysfunctional office. The Premier's speech was even more amusing. He said, quote, We cannot be a party that just runs on its record, but doesn't set a vision for the future. This may be controversial in this room. But I believe we failed to do that at a federal level. Our strong track record of getting Australia through the pandemic wasn't enough, unquote. Our what? Strong track record? Come off it. Is this the same strong track record which shut down the entire construction industry in New South Wales, costing the economy $1.4 billion, despite the chief health officer not advising it? Or is it the same strong track record which fined people for sitting on park benches or for snitching on their neighbour? Or does the Premier mean the strong track record which treated the residents of Western Sydney as second-class citizens as they bore the brunt of restrictions and fines? Dominic Perrottet then said at the weekend, quote, we're the party of freedom. We believe in government getting out of the way and it's our responsible fiscal and economic management that has paid the biggest dividends, unquote. Who writes this stuff? Seriously. The New South Wales Liberal government has thrown freedom out the window for the past two years. Apparently, it wasn't worth defending. And what about getting out of the way? I have never had so many corporate people and business owners come up to me and whinge about how hard it is to do business here in New South Wales. Red tape galore, inquiries galore, roadblocks everywhere, and ministers unable to make a decision. This is why we've got a housing crisis which I'll talk again about later. And what are those words? Responsible economic management. The same government that's got Matt Keane as its energy minister and treasurer, a bloke who was allowed to ram through cabinet a $3 billion green energy plan, which no one had read and no one understood, but he claimed would create 10,000 new jobs. That's $300,000 worth of public money per job, 300,000. You are kidding me, New South Wales, under Keynes economic management, is a rent seeker's paradise. In 2021, net government debt in New South Wales was 37 billion. In this financial year, it'll be 78 billion debt. That's an increase of 110% in two years. The mail is that Perrottet is backing Keane for the deputy leadership tomorrow. If so, he and the government are finished. This issue of the deputy leadership has become even worse in the last couple of hours. The New South Wales Transport Minister, David Elliott, a would-be candidate, will join me in the studio soon, as will Tony Abbott on this issue of The Voice. And I'll have something to say in a moment about the Australian dilemma in relation to China. Stick with us. 
There is plenty to keep you entertained and informed. Remember, you can have your say. Email alanjones at adh.tv. You are watching ADH TV. Well, as I suggested just a couple of minutes ago, we are entitled to a legitimate concern that on issues affecting Australia's future, we the voter, we the people with most at stake for our own and our children's sake, are often unfortunately asleep at the wheel. And while unemployment is at 3.5% and interest rates, whatever else might be said about them going up, they are at historically low levels. There is a record number of Australians at work, such that there are hundreds of thousands of jobs that aren't being filled. A preoccupation with the present can easily obscure the difficulties of the future. That future is in the hands of our young people. But a Sydney University student told me only on Friday that he's part of an academic class and whenever China is referred to as a communist state, there is a cohort that hysterically disagrees and relentlessly argues that what is at work in China is no more than state capitalism. That's how we're breeding them at Sydney University. Nancy Pelosi has lit the fuse which should heighten our concerns because as she was prepared to board her plane to leave Taiwan last Wednesday night, the Chinese state media were working overtime, thundered the China Daily quote, the Chinese people are infuriated by US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the Taiwan island, but are generally optimistic and confident in China's ability to handle the situation and thwart any secession efforts by Chinese separatist forces, unquote. Well, some may say that the Chinese mainland outrage is manufactured and that we've seen this movie before. Nonetheless, the Chinese response has been nothing short of appalling. The relatively useless UN has called for de-escalation of tensions, but at the weekend, these were some of the largest ever military drills around Taiwan, leading to the legitimate conclusion that China was practicing a blockade and therefore an ultimate invasion. Taiwan concluded that China were conducting a simulation of an attack on Taiwan's main island. The Taiwanese army said, and I quote, 20 communist planes and 14 ships were detected in the waters around Taiwan, conducting joint air-sea exercises, unquote. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said Washington was, quote, determined to act responsibly, unquote, to avoid a major global crisis. But with the appalling weakness of Biden leadership, China must surely believe it can please itself. The Chinese leader Xi has made it clear over the years that China will reunite with Taiwan. Indeed, he has staked his legacy and his legitimacy on such an outcome. Experts are arguing that Taiwan's military is undertrained and ill-equipped with tanks and planes from half a century ago, but three quarters of its citizens say they are prepared to fight to keep the island free from mainland rule. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has handled this as well as can be expected. She joined US and Japanese counterparts to criticise China for firing missiles into the ocean in Japan's economic zone, hours after China halted all dialogue with America on major issues including climate change and military relations. Penny Wong met the US Secretary of State Blinken and the Japanese Foreign Minister Yoshimasa in Cambodia, and they issued a joint statement urging all parties to, quote, avoid the risks of miscalculation. They condemned Beijing's, quote, launch of ballistic missiles, five of which the Japanese government reported landed in its exclusive economic zones, and they urged China to, quote, immediately cease 
the military exercises over the Taiwan Strait. The Defence Minister Richard Miles has urged an end to China's military operations that have encircled Taiwan, and they've accused Beijing of breaching United Nations rules requiring countries to ensure peace and security in international waters. The Japanese Prime Minister Kishida has asked China to immediately stop its military exercises around Taiwan, and Japanese entry into the dispute has deepened an already volatile situation and escalated military competition in the South China Sea, where China has illegally staked territorial claims. You see, there is a median line that divides democratically governed Taiwan from China. But on Thursday, 100 warplanes harassed the area around the line and more than 22 fighter jets crossed the line. Illegal. Senator Wong, our foreign minister, told her Chinese counterpart Wang Yi on Friday to his face that Australia shared the region's concerns about Beijing's unprecedented military intimidation. To her credit, Penny Wong said, quote, these exercises are disproportionate and destabilising. This is a serious matter for the region, including for our close strategic partner, Japan. She talked about, quote, the risks of miscalculation and, quote, we urge restraint and de-escalation. Now, with all that as background, herein lies a major dilemma for Australia. The trade figures came out at the end of last week. It's an overused word, but they were unbelievable. And they provide two major wake-up calls for Australia. Firstly, our export prosperity is built on two things, according to these figures, selling to China and selling coal, gas and iron ore to the rest of the world. So in other words, the nation which on one hand poses as our biggest enemy, biggest enemy in the region, is the same nation guaranteeing our prosperity. We had an $18 billion surplus on trade in the month of June alone, way above any other month ever. A $136 billion trade surplus for the year, which is over $5,000 for every single Australian. And last financial year alone, our two-way trade with China added a massive $270 billion. We sold them $170 billion of mostly iron ore, gas and coal, all the things that Bowen, the Greens and the Teals want to ban, with no indication as to where our prosperity will then come from. The biggest geopolitical issue, geopolitical issue we face is how do we deal with the China that's threatening and encircling Taiwan when the same China is the foundation of our prosperity? We'll need more than sensible and knowledgeable government to address this dilemma. Do we have such a government? Well, look, normally the vote for a deputy leader of a political party wouldn't mean much. Federally, the deputy should be important. The deputy is the link between the parliamentary party and the leader, and that has to be maintained. To put it simply, the two federal deputies in the Liberal Party and the National Party are simply not up to the job. Most people couldn't tell you they were. In New South Wales tomorrow, the parliamentary Liberal Party will choose a new deputy leader. The process is reflective of what is currently happening in Britain with the Conservative Party. The Parliamentary Party is out of step with the rank-and-file Liberal Party membership who will not cop Matt Keane. Why is tomorrow critical in New South Wales? Well, if the Perrottet government thinks it's in a mess now, make no mistake. If Matthew Keane is chosen by the Parliamentary Liberal Party as deputy, 
The Perrottet government is finished. Remember, you heard me say this on August 8, 2022. I told you 18 months before the federal election that the Morrison government was gone. I've been around a long time. I can read the public mood. An election in March. I'll say it again. My information is Perrottet is supporting Keane for the deputy's job. But in the last several hours, it seems the factions have spoken and David Elliott will not run. This, in my view, is the beginning of the end of this government. The public are far too smart to cop this. Janice writes today, and I quote, just like the federal Liberals, the New South Wales Liberal Party is tearing itself apart. And in my opinion, State Treasurer Matt Keane has played a huge part in that. Due to his daily diary excerpts published in the telly during his COVID isolation, I've come to see a different side of the Keane rival, David Elliott. Not only does he have a good sense of humour, he appears a man of conviction and not swayed by how the wind blows and is a standout selection for deputy leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party, unquote. I will speak to David Elliott in just a moment, but Marge from Castle Hill writes, I don't know if David Elliott will get the job of New South Wales Liberals deputy leader or if a dark horse will emerge, as long as someone replaces Matt Keane. He has done nothing constructive to deserve his powerful position and it's time for him to go. The next election is not looking good, says Marg, for the state government, and they need everyone on the same page going forward, not a left-leaning Green pretending to be a Liberal. Well, David Elliott joins me. David Elliott, thank you for your time. You are not a candidate now. No, Alan, I mean, um, I, I, I've been around politics long enough, not as long as you, but, uh, you know, I, I joined the Young Liberals in... Uh, 1986 on my 16th birthday and uh, worked for a few politicians and you know I can count and for me to run tomorrow it would have been a, a donkey on derby day I would have been um, uh, a set aside unfortunately the, the the modern transactions in politics and of course the way that the faction system now dominates the way that all political parties operate meant that uh, it would have been a waste of everybody's time for me to put my name forward. So Premier Perrottet is supporting Matt Keane? Well, listen, can I just clarify? The, the Premier has not said for me to withdraw. He just made it very clear that in the interests of party unity, it was best that there wasn't a ballot. And I respect that. And, and I've worked for leaders who have had I don't, I don't agree with that, by the way. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've worked for... I've worked for and, I've, and I've served and worked for leaders that have had dud deputies. And, and if that relationship um, isn't, uh, isn't mutually... isn't one of mutual respect, well, then that's... that's, that's but, that, I mean, how, that, can, how can... Look, how can the Liberal Party survive when only last week the same man who apparently is going to get there unopposed, was virtually accusing Perrottet of being a dunce and stupid in relation to uh, the removal of Patinos and they were wanting heirs to go and so on. And, and the same man is not saying, I can't have a bloke this disloyal to the Liberal Party supporting me. No, no, no. Get rid of Elliot and promote Keane. I mean, the weight's obviously been put on you to pull out. And Anthony Roberts, a shout out to you. If you are supporting Keane, the public won't forgive you either. I mean, the weights have been put on this bloke to pull out. There's no other way of talking about it. David Elliott, the reason for this deputy leadership vacancy is a mystery to many. Now, the Premier seems to have folded in the face of a few headlines, and airs went, according to the Premier, because parts of a draft report into the Barillaro matter, and I quote, raise a question as to whether Mr Ayres has complied with the New South Wales Ministerial Code of Conduct. David Elliott, surely before Ayres lost his job, Shouldn't that question have been answered? We still don't know whether he's breached the code of conduct. I mean, the Premier's final paragraph 
of the announcement of Ayers' departure said, quote, a further review will therefore be undertaken to determine if Mr Ayers has complied with the code. So the bloke loses his job, but we still don't know whether he complied with the code. Your thoughts? Well, listen, Alan, I'm going to allow um, the parliamentary inquiry, which obviously um, sat this afternoon and, and, and will sit again on Friday. I'm going to allow that to go through. I didn't make a judgment call on, on, on Stuart Ayres because I hadn't read the head report. But can I say, um, I have high hopes that Stuart will return to the ministry. I have high hopes that the people of Penrith re-elect him. And I have high hopes that Stuart will one day lead the Parliamentary Liberal Party. I think that Stuart, um, I've just taken over this afternoon his responsibilities as the Minister for Western Sydney. And I'm going to be a very good custodian of that because I know when he's back in Cabinet, it is a job that he will want. And I'll be more than happy to hand it back to him. Him and I are both very, very passionate Westies. We both love everything about Western Sydney. Um, but I've got to say, um, in all my time in politics, my 36 years in politics, I'm struggling to find a, a better politician than Stuart Ayres. I agree with that entirely. I agree with that entirely. And I've had a lot to do with him in a lot of capacities. He is always on top of detail. And I've said on this program, I've found him unchallengeably honest. But do you understand that at this moment, there are people chucking boots and glasses and everything at the TV set because they are infuriated that Keane is getting a leg up unopposed and the Premier is doing nothing about it. Well, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think there probably will be people that have had... I mean, you've just read a couple of uh, comments that yeah. have been um, published today. Um, and that's why, I, um, that's why I've said today as well that I'm going to keep him accountable as Deputy Leader. And uh, um, if anybody thinks that this is... Um, a victory for the moderates over the conservatives in the in the broad church known as the Liberal Party. Well, um, think again because I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I got promoted today. Uh, I took a I took a new responsibility, so I got my third portfolio today. I um, and I I passionately believe in the conservative side of of politics. But see, because you do, you've let people down by succumbing to these people. Why didn't you let people vote against you and say? And then the electorate would say, Well, hang on, if they've given Elliot two votes. This is a party that doesn't deserve to govern. Well, that message is out there, um, it Alan. Is. I mean, because, you know, as a, unfortunately for me, the, the, the right wing of the party has decided to vote with the left wing of the party and, and the centre right of the party gets left out. But, um, and that's just modern po politics. That's, that's, that's what happens. Yeah, but what happens to the people out there? What's well, the electorate? I mean, Matt Keane criticised the Morrison government, which was being governed by the party of which he was a member. Nothing happened. He criticised relentlessly the selection of Catherine Deves. Nothing happened. If anyone else did that, they'd be expelled. And this makes Keane a leader. And then in relation to the Sactolini Patinos, a journalist last Monday tweeted, and I'll repeat this because I, I did this last week with my program here, quote, the journalist said, the perception amongst women, something very rotten in the New South Wales government, swift, decisive action against a woman accused over the possibility of, quote, unsafe workplace practices. And yet the Barillaro Airs situation, double standards, women have long memories, especially when it comes to vote. Now, I don't agree with the thesis of that point, but Keane is the New South Wales Treasurer, the putative deputy leader. He's the energy minister, yet he retweeted a response to that journalist, quote, oh, oh my God, yes, thank you for pointing that out, an utter disgrace. His words. So Perite's behaviour in dealing with heirs was an utter disgrace, that is, in not sacking him. And this bloke would make a loyal deputy David Elliott, are they expecting the sun to come up in the West? 
Well, I mean, Dom's obviously a little bit more forgiving than me because I did call out Matt Keane over his treatment of Catherine Deves. I did call him out over his, um, the treachery that he displayed during the federal campaign. And I'm going to call it, keep him to account. And your, your viewers can be rest assured that I will be keeping him to account. And I'll be making sure that, uh, uh, that he gets the same level of loyalty that he didn't offer the federal Liberal Party. That's just, there's no nice way of saying that. But I mean, I, um, I, I avoid using the gender card. I mean, I, I mentor women. Um, I've got a female chief of staff. I've got I've, I've promoted females in my council yeah. so that they can replace yeah. me one day as an MP. I mean, I'm, that's my view, but I don't go around trumpeting it as some sort of virtual, mm. um, a, 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 you know, vir virtual reality world that we live in where, you know, what somehow we've got to make sure that there's one gender equal to another one in when it comes to um, when it comes to possibilities for promotion. But I was at people at a weekend and you were quoted as saying that you would take Treasury away from Keane. And these people at the weekend were cheering. They said, about time someone did this, this might give me a reason to vote Liberal. And now tomorrow, there's every possibility that on top of Treasury, on top of energy, which he's made a mess of, he'll now have a deputy leadership. I just come back to the point, don't you really feel by not standing, you've let people down? Yeah, I have. And that's that's the nature of politics. You know, unfortunately, I can't be all things to all people. I wish I could be. Uh, but as I said, um, given that uh, uh, given the, the you know the factional heavyweights had made a decision, uh, given that you know I've often been uh, uh, I've often been a bit of a burden to the party. I've often been on the left field of the party in the sense that I've never uh, towed the line, and I've never been a you know I've, I've never towed the line of the factional leaders. Um, you know that's that's the price I've had to pay. You were the transport minister. You had some trouble with the rail, tram, and bus union and the taxi union, but Keane controls the purse. Was Keane helpful to you in all of this? Well, it's a matter of public record, Alan. I mean, I, I, we were very close to a deal and uh, he decided to blow it up. And that's another reason why I wanted to run against him as, as, uh, as deputy leader, because I, I thought that that was very, an insincere approach, making that sort of statement without even letting me know beforehand. Uh, and that's one of the things that I'm gonna keep him account for. Good on you, good on you. You've been accused of seeking the governorship from Premier Perrottet. Hmm? Well, I, as we both know, I'd make a sensational governor, Alan. I mean, it would uh, it would be uh, only appropriate for me to be Her Majesty's representative in New South Wales, but the only governor that I'll be getting is Long Bay Jail, I suspect. <laughs> Did you speak to Perrottet about a trade role so that he could dump you from the cabinet? No, no, I mean, uh, that's, we, we, can I say, we, we discussed um, what my role would be in a, um, in a, you know, in a, in a post-election world. We, of course, we have those discussions. We discussed where we're taking our wives for lunch on Sunday, uh, but, um, I, I, I live in the Hills District, Alan. We don't we don't leave the Hills District. It's it's Pleasantville, and I and I did promise my wife twenty years ago when I came back from peacekeeping, I never wanted to leave Australia again, and I and I never want to work overseas again. I'm it was um, you know living and working in a third world country, and I know London and Paris and New York and all those places aren't third world countries, but Australia's the best place to be, and I prefer, I, I intend to stay. You see, in the light of what you said now, we've got to go, got to go. But in the light of what you said now. There'll be people on the Keen side calling for sanctions against you. 
when in fact this bloke has been a professional critic of the Liberal Party and people within it when he is a member of that party. I do not understand, and people watching this program do not understand how such a person could be elevated to the deputy leadership. But thank you, as always, the reason they wanted you as a candidate. You're always open and honest and frank, and you're a straight shooter, and we desperately need those sorts of people in the party. So hang on there. We'll talk again down the track. Thanks, Alan. There he is. It's a loss, this bloke. But there are the factions, you see. He's been nobbled. And Dominic Perrottet... Even if David Elliott were to be a candidate, let me tell you, Perrottet was supporting Keane. And Anthony Roberts, you were supporting Keane. Even if Elliott had stayed as a candidate, the leader was supporting a bloke who's behaved treacherously towards he, him and towards the party. Work that out. People who behave like that don't deserve to be sitting on the Treasury benches. We'll talk to David Elliott again. A very impressive candidate. We need more of them in the Liberal Party. Look, I spoke last week about what I call the appalling housing crisis across the country. I noted that in New South Wales, the man appointed the building commissioner, without his appointment going to cabinet, I might add, David Chandler had resigned, presumably because he couldn't get his own way with the now sacked Minister Patinos. Premier Perrottet had better not reinstate Chandler. He's been part of the housing problem, not the solution. But as I've said often, even if young people could find a house, for $500,000, and that's at the lower end, isn't it, of the range, after they've paid off the hex debt and paid rent, how can a young person or any person save the 20% deposit needed on a $500,000 house? That's $100,000. The result is that people who have suffered from the bushfires and the floods are still without a home, but they can't afford exorbitant rent. A bronze sculpture has been unveiled at the New South Wales Rural Fire Services State Training Academy in Dubbo. It shows the volunteer firefighter, Chris Montgomery, taking a rest as the fires continued to come. His fire truck was out of water and the nearest dam was behind a wall of roaring flames. Chris Montgomery, a volunteer with the Carwoola Brigade near his home in Queenbian, put his head down, isn't that beautiful? Put his head down to get a breath of air and to try to clear the smoke out of his eyes, leaning on his rake hoe. There is the sculpture. Beautiful stuff. Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Because these people have suffered, and at the end of the day, what's happening? While this sculpture serves as an artistic symbol of every firefighter, it shames us all to know that we are beginning to look like the Australia of the Depression. Tradies, families, even business owners and professionals devastated by floods and bushfires are living in shanty towns, motels, cars. They can't find housing. The rental market's tight. There's a car park along Lake Illawarra near Wollongong in New South Wales that looks like a homeless township. Suicide rates escalate and people who've never experienced homelessness before are frozen out. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is taking a week off for a holiday following what he describes as a busy first sitting fortnight, worked for two weeks. Not a whimper from the lefties in the media who went after the then Prime Minister Morrison, who dared to take a holiday. But does no one in Canberra understand the trauma of not having a home and being shoved onto the streets? That must be the case because they're doing nothing about it. Builders are being held up everywhere by red tape. I said last week, hundreds of multi-million dollar development applications, which would generate thousands of homes and jobs, especially in New South Wales, are stuck in the planning system. And then even when approval has come, there are bureaucratic bullies, like the building commissioner Chandler, 
who issue threats instead of instructive support. We have a building and construction industry where developers are treated like criminals. Yet the building industry is the golden goose that lays the record stamp duty revenue egg. Why do we have the least housing stock per adult in the developed world? Why do the states of Australia have less housing stock per adult in 2021 than we did in 2016, even though there's been a massive population increase? Why doesn't the Prime Minister give up his one week holiday to answer this question? What are you doing about housing affordability, housing supply, key worker accommodation and affordable rent? PM, visit this week some of the most productive agricultural land in the world, the Darling Downs, the Liverpool Plains and the glorious agricultural country in northwest Victoria. How much would this productive land cost per acre? 2.2 hectares. How much an acre? The answer would vary, $6,000 to $8,000 an acre, certainly not $10,000. But then next Saturday, go to Castle Hill, 30 kilometres from Sydney's CBD, and try to buy a quarter acre block. You'll struggle, get in, you'll, you'll struggle to get anything under a million dollars, which means that unproductive land on which you need to build a house is not $8,000 an acre, like the best agricultural land, but $4 million an acre. It's not the cost of a house that's the problem. It's the cost of the land on which the house has to be built. It's killing Australians. But instead of addressing the issue, parliamentarians head off on holidays. Can someone govern in the public interest? The hardworking homeless are not much interested in what the temperature might be in 30 years' time or what the voice is. They want a roof over their heads, a problem to which governments have no answers. And if that's the case, what then is government for? Well, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has, as you know, indicated that he'll ask us in a referendum for the power to alter the Constitution. The question being, do you support an alteration of the Constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, unquote? When there was an immediate outcry about the absence of detail, Anthony Albanese revealed three clauses to be written into the Constitution, one of which says, quote, the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, unquote. You will remember I indicated to you last Thursday that that clause alone, I said, must end any likelihood that we should vote yes. Future Australian parliaments, in other words, could give this Indigenous parliament, quote, functions and, quote, unquote, powers. Functions and powers. We're entitled to ask what functions, what powers? The former Prime Minister Tony Abbott has one of the finest minds of anyone to have entered Parliament since the war. He writes with clarity and conviction. Last week he wrote, and I quote, the problem with entrenching in the Constitution an Indigenous voice to the Parliament is not just that it makes race an element in who can vote and who can stand for election, but also that it unavoidably changes the way our government works because a particular group will have an unspecified say over unspecified topics with unspecified ramifications, unquote. This led to the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, launching an attack on Tony Abbott, arguing that he's stoking anxiety and fear. 
pretty pathetic defence, I would have thought. Anyway, Tony Abbott joins us tonight, the former Prime Minister. Uh, Tony, thank you for your time. Uh, in the piece by Kevin Rudd, which I must apologise for having read, <laughs> I normally try to avoid him, he makes reference to the apology that he delivered in 2008 to Indigenous Australians. May I just ask you, how has that apology benefited Austra Aboriginal Australians, who, as Jacinda Price has said over and over again, continue to suffer some, in some parts of Australia, the most appalling and savage abuse from other Indigenous people? That's a good question, Alan. And while I certainly thought uh, that the apology was a bit of a grace note in our national life at the time, uh, it's like lots, lots of apologies. Um, people feel better, but in the end, is their behaviour going to change? And the difficulty that we've got in this country is that for a long time now, too many Indigenous people have led worse lives than the rest of us because in large parts of Indigenous Australia, the kids don't go to school, the adults don't go to work and the ordinary law of the land doesn't apply. And until those things change, too many Aboriginal people will die much too young and they will have lives that aren't nearly as fulfilling and satisfying as they should absolutely, be. Absolutely. And the trouble with his voice, quite apart from the fact that it does entrench race in our constitution, is that it's much more likely to be dominated, should it ever happen, by the likes of Lydia Thorpe than by people such as Jacinta Price, who know what it's like to live in a difficult remote community uh, and want to do the right thing by Aboriginal people rather than simply engage in virtue signalling. Yeah, I mean, it's the same old story though, isn't it? If you disagree with people like this, then you have to be, you become the victim of all sorts of allegations about racism and everything. I mean, Kevin Rudd says, oh, the reason Abbott has said this sort of stuff is because you're, quote, misleading the public for political ends. I would have thought it's a fairly ungenerous observation. Alan, look, uh I suppose it's the kind of argy-bargy that happens when these things are debated. Uh, I've tried to stay away from day-to-day -day political commentary since leaving the parliament, but anything that changes the constitution is for keeps, and that's, that's why it. I think it's important to say something here. Uh, if we do entrench this voice in our constitution, uh, we will be changing our country for the long term and I fear we'll be changing it for the worse because we're not going to improve the relations between black and white Australia, uh, but we are certainly going to make uh, a whole lot of uh, governance issues much more complex and we will be setting up permanently two classes of Australia, Australians, one uh, of Indigenous people who effectively get two votes and the other, the rest of us, who will simply vote for the parliament in the normal way. Now, the great thing about the current parliament is that we actually have, without quotas, uh, without race-based discrimination, without any particular uh, constitutionally entrenched voice, the current parliament has 11 individual Indigenous voices in it. This is to our credit as a society. Uh, it's to the credit of the individual's that they've managed to make it without any special treatment. And frankly, that's the way our parliament should be working at its best. So rather than say, oh, look, there are all these problems that only a voice can correct, 
just now we should be saying, isn't it terrific that our existing system is working well and finally giving Indigenous people the representation that they deserve Absolutely. in the national parliament. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, the last two Indigenous ministers were both Indigenous Australians, whether you're talking about Ken Wyatt the first or Linda Burney now. But here is where you highlight the weakness in the Albanese argument because he talks about the quote when he made the speech, the torment of powerlessness amongst Aboriginal people. So if you've got half a brain, you'd say, a voice to the parliament must therefore be more than an advisory body because in the Prime Minister's own language, it must invest Aboriginal people with power. Now, you had a voice to the Parliament when you were Prime Minister. Uh, didn't you institute an Indigenous Advisory Council? Well, I did, which was headed by Warren Mundine and included some very distinguished Indigenous people on it. Warren Mundine, of course, uh, at that stage, was the former National President of the Labor Party, as well as being someone who uh, very much uh, speaks for Indigenous people and indeed for the wider community on so many issues. But Anthony Albanese, in a sense, Alan, gave the game away uh, a few days later when he said on TV, he said, it would be a very brave government, quote unquote, uh, that ignored the voice. So in other words, this voice is not simply meant to be advisory, it's effectively a veto over government action. At least that's what the Prime Minister appeared to be admitting on TV over the mm -hmm. weekend. Mm -hmm. But we've got a Council of Peaks, P-E-A-K-S, which represents, what, 70 top Aboriginal organisations, and it claims to be in a formal partnership with Australian governments. So how can you say Aboriginal people don't have a voice as I said, the last two ministers for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt and Linda Burney, are both Aboriginal Australians, and you've got the Council of Peaks. And, and, and this is a very fair point. Uh, Indigenous people are absolutely consulted. In fact, uh, if you go out into remote Australia, uh, the consultation almost never comes to a conclusion, and that's part of the problem. Uh, our difficulty is not lack of consultation with Indigenous people. In the end, our difficulty is that too often uh, Indigenous matters are judged by different standards than those uh, uh, that apply everywhere else. Um, the tyranny of low expectations, as Noel Pearson puts it, and, and really, it uh, doesn't matter where you are in Australia, the kids must go to school, the adults should go to work, and the ordinary law of the land should apply. Mm. Unfortunately, too mm. often, that's not the case uh, because of culture, in inverted commas, and frankly, we cannot apply different and lesser standards to Indigenous people and Indigenous circumstances than are expected of the wider Australian community. But, but isn't, you're, you're quite right, you're quite right, and you, do, you speak with such clarity, but isn't there a wider issue here which suggests to me that people in their ivory towers in Canberra don't seem to understand the Indigenous community? I mean, there isn't one Aboriginal group in Australia. There are hundreds. I mean, each has their own country, their own language, their own kinship system and their own culture. So, I mean, come, quite, quoting Warren Mundine again, he says, a national body can't speak for Aboriginal people as a group and Aboriginal people won't recognise it. They're valid sentiments, aren't they? I, I, think, I think that's a fair point. And look, 
this entity uh, is about speaking to um, a green left perspective uh, as much as it is speaking to uh, Indigenous Australians. And all of us want to do the right thing by Indigenous people. All of us do. And uh, I'm more than happy to see Indigenous people recognised in the Constitution. It's just that it's got to be the right recognition, not the wrong recognition. And one of the problems, Alan, is that in the 15 years uh, since both sides of politics committed to some form of Indigenous constitutional recognition, this debate has gone way beyond recognition itself. And it's now about transforming not just Indigenous governance, but national governance. And mm. I think we've but, gone... But several steps too far. Yeah, I mean, isn't it extraordinary, though, that a, par that a party which says we're going to institute this as a means of having uh, discussions, consultation, getting the opinions of Indigenous Australians, but they abolished the cashless debit card without any consultation with the affected communities. And I think, as you said, and I've said, despite the objection of at least some Indigenous leaders. Exactly right, Alan. And... Um... I'm not saying that the cashless debit card was a panacea, no. but it was an important part of trying to ensure that in these remote places, the money that taxpayers provide to people on benefits uh, is, is properly spent. Now, um, the money that's being given to people uh, who are on benefits should be spent largely on the necessities mm. of life. That's what the cashless debit card was all about. And frankly, uh, it was wrong of a government that was determined to listen to Aboriginal people via this voice, not to listen uh, to the Aboriginal Absolutely. people on the ground mm. who said, well, hang on That's a minute. It. This is not actually going to help and, us. And let's, and let's have some discussion. Just before we go, I mean, one of the things that you made in the piece you wrote was this point about separatism, that this would institute a sense of separatism, not only in the Constitution, but in the community at large. Now, if I just ask this one before we go, I mean, if I go to your home, you are likely to welcome me in, confirmation of the fact that I'm entering something that's not mine, it belongs to you, and you will say, welcome, Alan, come in. So when before the opera or the state of origin or indeed anything, we have an Indigenous Australian offering a welcome to country, isn't that telling us we're not the owners of this land? You know, you're, you don't belong here. You don't own the land. You, you, you're here as a result of the indulgence offered to us by Indigenous Australia. That is the kind of separatism we can do without. Look, Alan, I understand the point that you're making. Uh, I think that most of the time these acknowledgements of country are an act of politeness uh, by the people who are making them. Uh, they're an expression, if you like, of regret on the part of today's Australians uh, at what so many people see uh, as past disposition, dispossession. But in the end, this country belongs to all of us now. That's it. Um, that's it right. might once have been right. Wiradjuri country or it might once have been Eora country, but it really belongs to all yes. of us now. Yes. And yes. so yes. I can understand why a lot of people feel a little uncomfortable uh, at the prevalence mm. of these acknowledgements Absolutely. of country. Just, 
as if it belongs to some of Quite. us as opposed to all, all of us. And just before you go then, are they asking us to vote yes or no on what we know now? How do we vote? Well, um, I hope the government will decide not to put this to the people because I suspect it will go down yeah, and absolutely. the last thing I would like is to see something that a lot of Indigenous people have invested in defeated. Um, I think we can do better when it comes to constitutional recognition than this voice That's proposal. Right. And and you, mm. The idea that I was attracted to was putting in the preamble to the Constitution a statement that, yes, we are one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the Crown, and this would be the addition, a nation with an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character, because it's unarguably true that we do have all those three things and there's something for everyone in that. Absolutely. Great stuff. Great stuff. Good to talk to you, as always, Tony, and thank you for your time. There we are. That's Tony Abbott. Thanks, he wants that incorporated as a preamble to the Constitution, that in the Commonwealth we are under the Crown, one, one entity with an Indigenous heritage, you heard him say, a British foundation and an immigrant character, and that fundamentally is who we are. Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Look, I think most Australians would feel that our modern world is too dominated by negativism and protest. Do we genuinely encourage and support and admire success? It's one thing about the Americans, do you think? The bloke drives down the street in a Cadillac and the neighbour says to himself, i got to work harder, I want one of them. In Australia we say, why has he got that? And we'll either have a go at stealing it or disfiguring it. Then there's the tax system. Those who work and save and invest, we tax so that those who don't work, don't save and don't invest can put their hand out for the spoils won by the worker. Well, Birmingham is a city in the West Midlands, which won an 18th century reputation in England as a manufacturing powerhouse. Indeed, still today, out of England's 317 global government authorities, Birmingham is regarded as the seventh most deprived local authority. Though it's the second largest UK city, but they've breathed new life into the Commonwealth Games. Did you see those crowds at 11 a.m. Birmingham time? In the morning, the athletic stadium was packed and didn't they get their money's worth? And didn't we? Talking about the un-Australian disease of not saluting success, you won't get that here. You've got to say this slowly. The win by the Sydney 25-year-old Oliver Hoare, another Trinity Grammar old boy like Rowan Browning, in the men's 1,500 metres on the track may well be one of the finest sporting performances in years. The field contained the metric mile, the newly minted world champion, and the three men who came second, third and fourth at the Tokyo Olympics last year. Four of the finalists were from last month's world championships. They were in the field. Ollie Hoare, who studies and is coached in America, has won an unforgettable and sensational gold medal on the line, joining the great Herb Elliott, as the only two Australians, Herb in 1958, the only two Australian athletes to have won the mile or the metric mile in a Commonwealth Games, smashing the Games record in what must rank as one of the greatest athletic performances by an Australian athlete ever. He dedicated the gold medal to his grandfather, a World War II veteran who died at age 96 a week ago. And the young man, Ollie Hall, was very close to his grandfather and the funeral was two days before his grandson achieved this sensational result, beating the Tokyo Olympic silver medalist and former world 1500 metre champion on the line 
in what has been described, I say, as one of the greatest races ever seen at the Commonwealth Games. There were other stars. Jemima Montag won the gold medal in the 10-kilometre walk, repeating the gold that she won in the gold at the Gold Coast four years ago, but she dedicated the gold medal to her grandmother, who avoided the gas chambers of World War II and walked to freedom across ice with no food and barely any clothes. Another remarkable performance by a relatively unknown was that of Daniel Golubovich, who came within 36 points of winning the gold medal in the men's decathlon. We've got now four athletes, over 8,000 points, which is unbelievable. Australia have been on fire in the diving. Madison Keeney and Annabelle Lucy Smith won gold in the women's synchronised three-metre springboard. Every twist and turn of one diver must match that of the other. And we also won the women's synchronised 10-metre platform with the 14-year-old Charlie Petroff and the gifted 30-year-old Melissa Wu. Now, I don't know if you're into this rhythmic gymnastics, but they throw hoops and clubs into the air, they turn poetic somersaults, and they catch what they've just released. Amazing gold medal stuff by Alexandra Kiroi Bogut-Varia. Kelsey Lee Barber has now joined the greats. She had just written her name into the history books at the World Championships in Oregon, the first woman ever to win back-to-back -back world titles in the Javelin. Then she contracted coronavirus in the lead up to Birmingham, yet she's won the Javelin gold medal with her final throw, Kelsey Lee Barber. Having won the gold medal in the women's pole vault with Nina Kennedy, 25-year-old Curtis Marshall has won gold in the men's pole vault. No one seems to be able to touch our women's netball. They won gold, as did our splendid women's cricket team, technically superb players. And what about the 30-year-old Aaron Wilson? <laughs> He's won back-to-back -back gold medals in the men's individual lawn bowls. Four years ago on the Gold Coast, there he is, he famously ripped off his shirt after he won the gold. He did the same thing at the weekend, but he offered the immortal observation after the shirt came off, and I quote, have a look at him, I just wish I had a better rig, but that's life. <laughs> I think we agree with him. Well, from that to some sadness, Australia lost three remarkable achieving Australians at the weekend. Judith Durham of the Seekers, whom I knew very well, rightly described by the Prime Minister as a national treasure, and Peter Dutton rightly observed that her voice was a gift of universal beauty. The respected journalist and accidental politician John Tingle died at the age of 90. He was an extraordinary broadcaster of high intellect, a mellifluous voice, and the founder of the Shooters' Party due to a lifelong interest in guns and shooting. I knew him well. A talented man, but which is more difficult, a wonderful human being. And then the sad passing of David Barnett, with whom I worked on Prime Minister Fraser's staff in those difficult and tumultuous times of the dismissal. David Barnett had what very few today possess, an unapologetic commitment to Liberal values. He knew what the Liberal Party should stand for and wrote and advised accordingly in language that was often not appreciated. He was a superb human being and a magnificent contributor to an Australia which today he would feel has lost its way. Look, just before we go to Fred Paul, I said last week that Peter Dutton should be bold in his support for nuclear energy. In the midst of this energy crisis, which is happening all over the globe, now is the time to embrace nuclear power. Australia's got over 40% of the world's uranium reserves. On Thursday night, I showed you a list of the 46 countries which have embraced this energy source. Peter Dutton says he'll conduct a review into, quote, advanced and next generation nuclear technologies. Now, Peter Dutton, forget the review. People are sick of reviews. 
There's plenty of evidence already which shows that small modular reactors are the way of the future. Unlike old technology, they don't need to be placed next to a water catchment. This is the future. This is called being progressive. Whereas Chris Bowen's obsession with solar panels and wind turbines, which are manufactured in China and end up in landfill, and which are intermittent in supply, that means unreliable, that's what I'd describe as regressive. Relying solely on renewables would mean living in the dark. And how can a business trade if there's no certainty about power supply? How can a household function if there's no certainty about power supply? It's Bangladesh stuff. The coalition need to show some political courage. Forget the endless reviews. Already in 2019, following a referral from Angus Taylor, who was the Energy Minister, the House of Representatives Standing Committee on the Environment and Energy conducted an inquiry into the prerequisites for nuclear energy in Australia. My point is, there's an abundance of material already available. How much more do we need? Well, enter the shrewd Bob Carr, the longest serving Premier of New South Wales and former Foreign Minister of Australia. He wrote a piece in the Australian newspaper on Friday, arguing that nuclear power could be the big idea that the Liberals need to show they have an idea or two. He's not wrong. Apart from attacking Labor on their management of the economy, despite the coalition presiding over it for the past decade, the coalition need a big idea in their arsenal. This could be it. As Bob Carr writes, and I quote, Dutton in the next three months has the chance to prove that this time Australian Conservatives are serious. He can pitch it direct to 4.5 million voters in the November 26 Victorian elections. He can show this is more than a lazy thought experiment and invest it with hard-edged credibility, unquote. Well, if it's good enough for France, the UK and 44 other countries, why isn't it good enough for Australia? As one writer says today, quote, why did Bob Hawke spend the last 20 years of his life telling Australia to go nuclear? Why are two of history's most successful businessmen, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, financing a new generation reactor in Wyoming? We've got too many politicians who are gun shy and don't want to enter the public arena and prosecute their case. But if you're not going to do that, why be in Parliament? As Michael Kroger often says to me, there are too many Brussels sprouts sitting on the parliamentary benches doing two-fifths of nothing. That's it from me tonight. Stay with us, though, as Fred Paul carries you on into the next hour, where he'll talk about the issues which matter to you. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night. Remember, you're on ADH-TV.